This is part three of three discussing the history of special education, and I begin this part discussing the era three contemporary form from 1950 to the present. Reeling from the extent to which Hitler applied eugenics and social Darwinism in Nazi Germany, American society wanted to fully distance itself from these practices. Furthermore, public awareness and sensitivity toward people with disabilities increased when many joined the war effort, and veterans returned with physical and emotional disabilities acquired in war. New theories in developmental psychology, such as Watson's behaviorism and Bandura's social learning theory, contributed to an increased emphasis on the role of nurture and experience in human development. Most significantly, however, other historically marginalized groups began to demand change and fight for equal rights. Concurrently, medical, scientific, and technical advances enabled more disabling conditions to be identified, treated earlier, or prevented altogether. For example, effects of early nutrition were emphasized, dilantin was developed to control epilepsy, and antibiotics decreased the effects of whooping cough and diphtheria. Further, hearing aids became smaller and more effective, and training for guide dogs increased. However, in addition to being a major victory for the Civil Rights Movement, Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 paved the way for far-reaching changes in policies and approaches to educating students with disabilities. By ruling that state-sanctioned se segregation based solely on a person's unalterable characteristics such as race, gender, or disability was unconstitutional, the Supreme Court provided a legal avenue for one of special education's most influential advocates, Gunnar Dibwad, to address the unequal treatment of students with disabilities. Dibwad's educational advocacy was deeply grounded in his belief that no matter how severe their disability or how limiting their environment, people with special needs could grow in ability and talent. Denouncing the notion that people with mental disabilities or intellectual disabilities could not learn, Dibwad asserted that rather educators did not yet know how to teach. Limited programs and narrow expectations perpetually stimmy the potential growth and maturation of children with disabilities. In order to teach effectively, Dibwad argued that there must first be a belief that every human being has the ability to learn, followed by the conviction that everyone has a right to educational training in accordance with his or her needs. Dibwad argued that there must be a belief in the limitless value and a specifically quality of every human being, regardless of his or her degree of intelligence and declared that people with intellectual disabilities are not a species set apart, but are human beings like you and I, human beings with a handicap to be sure, but entitled within the limitations of their handicap to live like other human beings. Dibwad brought the plight of people with disabilities and the injustices they experienced to the forefront of the public mind. However, he recognized that ideas and attitudes alone were not enough. They needed to be translated into action and he challenged the legal systems to accomplish this aim. Dibwad represented the Pennsylvania Association of Retarded Children in their class action suit against the state of Pennsylvania. We're familiar with it as Park versus Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in 1972. The court ruled in favor of the park, striking down state laws used to exclude children with disabilities from public schools, requiring the provision of an individualized education tailored to the needs of children with intellectual disabilities. This case provided a framework for other states to follow, eventually leading to the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975, now IDEA, securing a free and appropriate public education for all students with disabilities. 
In the lawsuits that followed, many reaching the United States Supreme Court, Dibwad successfully framed disability as an issue of civil rights rather than a charitable, medical, or social issue. Dibwad asserted that help should come as a matter of right, not as a consequence of generosity for charity's sake. Prejudice is so frequently a weapon disguised as benevolence, Dibwad wrote. By establishing education as a right that states had a duty to provide, Dibwad was able to address and challenge the standards of care and service provided for people with disabilities. While Dibwad challenged the country's legal system, one of his most influential contemporaries, Burton Blatt, successfully galvanized public opinion and instigated significant changes in societal perceptions of disability. Blatt is perhaps best remembered for his eye-opening photographic essay, Christmas in Purgatory, depicting the conditions of people with uh, intellectual disabilities in American institutions in the 1960s. His introduction begins, There is a hell on earth, and in America there is a special inferno. We were visitors there during Christmas, 1965. By exposing the deplorable conditions and profound neglect many in American institutions encountered, Black focused the country's attention on the plight of people with disabilities, denying society the chance to remain or the choice to remain ignorant of the countless people who are locked up, hidden away, afflicted, and ignored. On this slide, you can view two pictures from Christmas in Purgatory. Change in societal perceptions provided the necessary precursors for the normalization and deinstitutionalization movements that Wolf Wolfensberger introduced and heavily promoted in the United States. The concept of a normalization originated in Scandinavia with an emphasis on mainstreaming people with disabilities into society, offering a normal life routine, normal developmental experiences, independent choices, and the right to live, work, and play in normal surroundings. A natural extension of the normalization movement was the deinstitutionalization movement, an effort to move people from large institutions into community-based living arrangements in smaller residential homes. Both movements contributed to greater visibility of people with disabilities, increasing public awareness and prompting greater acceptance and understanding. Since Dibwad, Blatt, and Wolfensberger's early advocacy in the second era of reform, great emphasis continues to be placed on the role of effective instructional techniques and interventions for adequately educating and nurturing the development of students with a wide range of disabilities. Special education today is a thriving enterprise, rich and varied in its topics, its theories, its practices, a vital component, component of the American public school system. There are many similarities between the efforts and advocacy of individuals ushering in the early eras of earlier reform and contemporary reform. The work of Blatt, Dibwad, and Wolfensberger in the mid-1900s actually very closely resembles the efforts of Dix, Howe, and Sagan in the mid-1800s. Each exposed the horrific social and physical conditions people with disabilities faced. Each framed disability as an issue of human and civil rights rather than philanthropy and charity, and each fought to translate positive changes in societal attitudes into legislation that protected and provided for people with disabilities. Parallels among early and contemporary form are remarkably strong. The photographs filling the pages of Blatt and Kaplan's Christmas in, Tur in Purgatory mirror the images Dick so vividly painted with words. In fact, there are so many congruencies, if all proper nouns are removed, it's difficult to differentiate some of the scenes depicted in Dix's memorial from those depicted in Christmas in Purgatory. Blatt's descriptions of institutions in the 1960s with dirt and filth, 
odors, naked patients groveling in their own feces, children in locked cells, horribly crowded dormitories, and understaffed and wrongly staffed facilities eerily echo the observations Dix made of the almshouses and prisons she visited over a century earlier. There she stood, clinging to or beating upon the bars of her caged apartment, the contracted size of which afforded space only for an increasing accumulations of filth, a foul spectacle. spectacle. There she stood with naked arms and disheveled hair, the unwashed frame invested with fragments of unclean garments, the air so extremely offensive, though ventilation was afforded on all sides save one, that it was not possible to remain beyond a few minutes without retreating for recovery to the outward air. Dix observed that neglected children, old and young, each and all, witnessed this lowest, foulest state of miserable humanity. Blatt described rooms with groups of twenty and thirty very young children lying, rocking, sleeping, sitting alone. Each of these rooms were without toys or adult human contact, although each had desperate-looking adult attendants standing by. Dix noted that the inmates were less regarded than the lowest brutes. Blatt observed human beings being treated less humanely, with less care, and under more deplorable conditions than animals. After detailing the conditions and treatment of people in institutions, both Dix and Blatt challenged societal leaders to legislate change. Dix asserted, It is defective legislation which perpetuates and multiplies these abuses, and charged the legislature of Massachusetts. Gentlemen, I submit to you this sacred cause. Your action upon this subject will affect the present and future condition of hundreds and of thousands. Blatt wrote in 1974, we challenge every institution in America to look at itself now. We challenge every institution and every governor and every legislator to justify its personnel and their practices, its size and development, and its budget. It is significant that rather than seeing improvement since the era of early reform, contemporary advocates found themselves fighting the exact battles and injustices fought a century earlier. Just as Dix appealed to the lawmakers of her time, it was still necessary for Dibwad to challenge the courts to establish laws and regulations for protection and equal rights of people with disabilities. Just as Sagan was concerned about institutions becoming too large and losing their effectiveness, Wolfensberger repeatedly asserted that if, it, if necessary at all, institutions should be small, closer resembling a natural family unit. Like how Blatt's major contributions served to galvanize public sentiment and establish the premise that people with disabilities are no less human than others, and deserve equal rights, dignities, and opportunities. With such expansive reform and significant progress in the legal, civil, and educational rights of people with disabilities experienced today, it's hard to imagine that these recent advancements it's hard to imagine these recent advancements deteriorating to the point of again requiring a memorial to the legislature of Massachusetts or a Christmas to pur in purgatory. However, self-examination is essential if we are to improve services and outcomes for people with disabilities and uphold the victories that have been won. The history of special education in the United States have recorded, has recorded both great successes and failures. Fortunately, attention to the past success and past failures aids in the identification of several cautionary markers that can warn, guide, and inform the future. These markers include dehumanization based on disability, eugenic practices aimed to eliminate people with disabilities, quality of life arguments motivated by economics, and conclusive decisions despite inconclusive data.
dehumanization based on disability. Much like ancient Greece, practices justifying the termination of people with disabilities continued to be made based on less than human arguments. Lacking the technology to identify disability before birth, babies born with disability in ancient times were routinely killed by drowning, strangulation, or exposure to the environment. These practices were justified based on the view that imperfection equated to being inhuman. Lack of intelligence marked lack of a soul. Although infanticide is not currently legal in the United States, the practice of aborting a fetus based solely on a prenatal diagnosis of disability demonstrates the same perennial attitude towards disability. Furthermore, less than human arguments are used to justify the involuntary euthanasia of people with severe and profound intellectual and physical disabilities. Discussing the dehumanization of people with disabilities, Block in 2000 explains, disability, when applied as a medical or psychological diagnosis, takes the culturally, socially, and historically derived identity of an individual and subsumes it beneath a designation of pathology. Once dehumanization based on disability is achieved, practices like abortion and euthanasia based on disability can more easily be viewed as simply medical procedures. While an ethical deba debate over the constitutionality of abortion and euthanasia is not the purpose of this presentation, decisions to abort or involuntarily euthanize based solely on a disability status negates the argument that society more easily accepts people with disabilities today than in the past. Despite widespread repugnance towards Hitler's application of eugenics in Nazi Germany, eugenics in the United States is not dead. It simply has new names and new forms. While termed eugenics in the early to mid-1900s with intelligence tests as the tools, genetic, genetic counselors replace the eugen, eugenicists and prenatal screenings are the new tests informing decisions today. Ponaru in 2006 observed that although many Americans are concerned that schools over-test children, the first test to which they are subject comes long before school and it's the highest stakes test of all. We test our children in the womb and depending on the results decide whether they will live or die. Scientific advancements in prenatal testing enable the detection of hundreds of abnormalities in the womb. Consequently, children are aborted for a wide range of chronic to very mild disabilities, ranging from deafness, blindness, dwarfism, cleft palates, defective limbs, and even the wrong gender. Currently, over 80% of fetuses diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted based solely on their genetic makeup. Similar to justifications based on less than human arguments, quality of life arguments under the guise of humanitarian concern promote the notion that terminating the life of a person with a poor quality of life prognosis is the compassionate and caring thing to do. This message subtly points to the underlying assumption that a person's right to exist is directly proportional to his or her potential to contribute to society. The justification for being allowed to live is based not on the act of involuntary existing, but on societal usefulness. Consequently, quality of life decisions are often coupled with economic arguments supporting euthanasia and abortion. These include comparisons of the cost of genetic screening to cost of lifelong medical support, as well as discussions about the long-term financial burdens people with disabilities place on families, communities, and social systems. Maser, in 1990, noted that as the number of screenable diseases increases, as more probes are made, then the economics will be even more favorable for establishing genetic counseling clinics. These cost analyses are important at times when health budgets are being stressed. Perhaps the most debilitating marker in the history of special education is the tendency for others to make conclusive, life-altering decisions about people while lacking conclusive empirical data 
to support their judgments. Social Darwinism and the outgrowth of eugenics were largely predicated on pseudoscientific facts fabricated to support already held presuppositions about disability deviance and hereditary. The final judgment in the Buck v. Bell case is largely refuted because of an incorrect prognosis that Carrie Buck's six-month-old infant had an intellectual disability. Sadly, this practice continues. Although Down syndrome is one of the most common prenatal diagnoses leading to abortion, studies indicate screening tests are inaccurate up to 40% of the time. Even today, despite the significantly improved outlook, misguided ideologies and unintended consequences continue to persist. Once they were finally included in public education, students with disabilities faced another kind of segregation and isolation. Public school classes in basements, down dark hallways, and in former closets, or somewhere in the back of the main school building. The initial purpose of the Reg Regular Education Initiative, REI, was to combat these conditions with the aim to improve instruction and include students with severe intellectual disabilities in neighborhood schools. However, REI proponents soon advocated for the elimination of a continuum of services in order to fully merge special education with general education, pushing for placement of all students in the general education classroom without consideration of severity of disability or individual needs. Consequently, as general education became better resourced, it would become more resourceful. As it became more expandable, special education would become more expendable. Additionally, while the intended consequence of the deinstitutionalization movement was greater acceptance and integration of people with disabilities into society, some clearly unintended consequences also developed. Discussing the growing threat to the lives of people with disabilities in the context of modernistic values Wolfensberger condemned the dumping of people with disabilities out of institutions only to be abandoned in communities, ending up idle, lonely, in poverty, and vulnerable to abuse. Clearly, the view is not the new is not necessarily better than the old, and reform ideology giving way to practical necessity is not simply an antiquated phenomenon left to the annals of history, but a perennial issue in special education and the treatment of people with disabilities in society. It has been said that special education often goes astray because of a continuing failure to see events in historical context. This discussion reflects an effort to examine developments in special education and disability advocacy through a historical context. As demonstrated, timeless perceptions and societal forms of dealing with disability continue to persist, simply repackaged and renamed. Philosophical arguments, scientific advancements, and economic motivations continue to threaten the outlook of people with disabilities to today. Mostert and Crockett, 1999-2000, suggested that historical awareness is one way to enhance the development of a professional culture more selective in its practices and more mature in its self-understanding. As demonstrated through this discussion, it is imperative for teachers being trained in the professional culture of special education to have an increased historical awareness and perspective of the significant yet often devastating history of this field and to be keenly aware and sufficiently equipped to identify the trends and attitudes that continue to threaten the fragile progress has, that has been made in the way people with disabilities are viewed and treated currently by society. History demonstrates that we must learn from it lest it perpetually repeat. Reflection on the past and examination of the present is necessary to ensure a better future. 
Consequently, teacher preparation programs have a significant role to play in ensuring that graduates are equipped and prepared not only to instruct the students under their care, but to effectively advocate on their behalf by identifying and opposing trends and attitudes that not only threaten hard-earned educational rights and progress, but most significantly threaten the very lives and well-being of children and youth with disabilities. Ultimately, in order to cultivate a professional culture more selective in its practices and more mature in its self-understanding, the full history of special education and disability advocacy in the United States must be systematically taught and intentionally examined in teacher preparation programs across the country. Thank you.